welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Well, my friends, it's good to see you today. You're going to take your copy of the scriptures, whether it's in paper or digital, and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke, the only gospel writer, not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Gentile simply means not a Jew. Luke, most likely a physician. We know that from Colossians 4. My favorite um, book in the Bible is the Psalms. My favorite chapter is Luke chapter 15. I guess because I see myself in it so much, where Jesus told three stories about the extravagant, scandalous love of God. Describing this parable, Charles Dickens, the author of A Tale of Two Cities and A Christmas Carol, called it, quote, the greatest short story ever written. It's the longest of all Jesus' parables. It is the most richly detailed, the most powerfully dramatic, and intensely personal. It's full of emotion ranging from sadness to triumph and a sense of shock. But before diving in, let's look at verse one and two because context is paramount. Why is Jesus telling this story to begin with? Well, we find out here in verses one and two of Luke chapter 15 where Luke writes, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining, mumbling, grumbling. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So there you have the reason we have this story in the first place. We have two sons in this story. The word prodigal is never mentioned in the story. The word prodigal simply means reckless. The word prodigal was put in there because of editors who you know, would put those subheadings. But it means this reckless son. But there were two reckless sons. And it's important before we focus on that younger son that we understand that both sons were lost. Both sons rebelled. One did so by being very bad. The other by being very good, like the Pharisees, thinking they could work their way to heaven, that they could check off the boxes and be good enough, that sort of thing. But both sons were alienated from the father's heart and both were lost sons. I wish we had time to focus on both sons, but alas, we do not. So let's jump in and let's take a look. Now this passage is one of those passages like when a pastor preaches on Easter or Christmas. You know what's coming, you've heard the story a hundred times. So how do we make it fresh? I have an idea. For all those who remember the story of the movie Back to the Future, anybody out there remember that? Of course you do. If you're a Christian, you've seen it before. And so he gets in the the DeLorean, right? He turns on the flux capacitor, which we know makes time travel possible. And let's travel back about 20 centuries to those dusty roads in first century Palestine, Judea, and let's see if we can somehow peek over the shoulder of the crowd and listen to Jesus and feel the the shock and the awe and the riveting attention that those people had. We have to go back. It's a first century Jewish community. They're agrarian. They live in villages, not cul-de-sacs and neighborhoods like we do today. So we look at first, the first point is the son's request. The son's request. 
In verses 11 and 12, we see that Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Right then and there, we would hear a huge gasp. Why? Why were his listeners thunderstruck and even offended and infuriated? Because the younger son was essentially saying, I want my inheritance now. Now, when typically do you get your inheritance, if there is any inheritance? Yeah, it's when they die. So what the son is saying, I wish you were dead. He's saying, in essence, I want, your, I want the father's stuff, but not the father. Listen, and that's what these first century Jews were hearing. They are mad, man. And they can't wait for this son to get his. The son is in essence saying, look, I have my own plans and you're in the way. Give me what's mine. So what Jesus' listeners are expecting to hear is completely different from how the story continues. What they're expecting to hear is for that, that father in the story to slap that son, to publicly shame him. They can't believe this boy is as big an idiot as they think he is. In fact, someone once said, when you're dead, you know you're dead. And all the pain is felt by others. The same thing happens when you're stupid. And so they're all feeling this pain of this boy, and it is an awkward moment. So the customary response would be for either a hard slap across the face from the father. This would be done to publicly shame the boy. In fact, sometimes with this kind of persistent disrespect, they would reckon the boy is dead and sometimes have a representative funeral for the child which now makes sense when at the end of the story, the father says, my son was dead, but now he's alive again. So Jesus could hardly have painted a scenario that would portray greater shame. That was the response everybody expected. But Jesus' next statement is gonna rock their world and turn it completely upside down. Point two, the father's response. It couldn't have been more shocking to this first century Jewish audience. What do you say in verse 12? So the father divided his property between his two sons. Now this would have been seen as a weak, cowardly response, especially by the Jewish leaders, by the religious leaders. How dare that father? He has no standards, he has no respect. This boy has been reckless, disrespectful, hateful. He deserves to be stoned outside the city village. But here's what's interesting. So you can understand the depth of what's going on here. The boy has said, divide, I want my share now. Back then, they didn't have banks and stocks and bonds and that sort of thing. Your wealth was represented in your land, your property, and your livestock. You remember Job, chapters one and two. I mean, he was wealthy. He had much land and livestock and property. And so that's what sets you apart as wealthy back in those early centuries. The word for property, when he says he divided his property, is the Greek word bios, which means life, biology, the study of life. And so what is happening here is this father is tearing himself in half. Now let that sit in the air for a moment. 
It's not like he had this abundance of funds and he says, sure, son, here you go. Go out and have a good time. This is killing his dad. And those who are listening to the story are in absolute shock and utter disgust. So what happens next? Well, you better be careful what you ask for. Point three, the son's rebellion. Look what happens in verses 13 through 16. So not long after that shameful display, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. No kidding. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed the pigs. That boy longed to fill his stomach with the garbage, the pods the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. So let's break this down, all right? This far country, of course, in the parable Jesus is telling, represents a physical trip. But for us today, it doesn't have to be a physical trip. It could be that we're just running from God, a mental, emotional, a spiritual state, man. And we really know it. If you're truly a Christian, you know when you're running from God, right? You know when you're out of fellowship. I mean, we just do. It's the Holy Spirit's conviction in our heart. In other words, it's, it's really the far country is, God, here you are, but I'm going to go my way. And here's the thing I don't want you to miss. God will let us go our way. In John chapter 6, verse 66, it is a heartbreaking display of Jesus' humanity. Remember, it's what theologians call the hypostatic union. It is Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. He's not half and half. Don't try to wrap your mind around it. We can't. He had an earthly mother, but a spiritual father. And so, but he still was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. But you need to not minimize that Jesus, although nothing like us, was just like us. Now let that, or as they say in the Psalms, Selah. Pause and think about that for a moment. So in John 6, 66, Jesus has raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's provided the, uh, you know, the never-ending buffet of fish and bread and those sorts of things, a nice salad. And so everybody is following him. They love this guy, but they want the sizzle and not the substance. And so Jesus breaks it down and offers this blistering sermon in John chapter 6. That's where he says, you should, if you want to follow me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that sounds really graphic, right? But he, they know what he's saying. What he's saying is, appropriate me in you. If you want me, take all of me. Not just the stuff you want, but the stuff that's going to cost you. Not just the amazing grace, but also the persecution that comes with it. And after he preached this, it says in verse 66 of John 6, from this time, many of his disciples turned and no longer followed him. There's a Greek imagery of finality. What I want you to see is that Jesus didn't run after him. In the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, it's not a sin being wealthy or having stuff. It's when the stuff owns you, right? It's when you fall in love with your stuff. And so Jesus got to the heart of the matter because the boy's already lied. He said, you know, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, keep all the commandments. Oh, I've done that. Well, you've already broken one of the Ten Commandments about lying right there. And then he goes on and says, I'll tell you what, let me get to the heart of the matter. 
go sell all your stuff and give the money to the poor. Well, things changed there. Mark records that that man walked away sad. Jesus did not run after him. In other words, God will let us go our own way and learn the hard way if that's what it takes. You ever been a parent, had a child, and they just insist on learning the hard way? And you end up going, I guess I have to do that. But it, just like the father, the bios, it tears us in half, right? So he squanders this in wild, riotous living. MTV used to have the girls gone wild. Didn't watch it. But this is like younger sons gone wild. And I mean, listen, in the Old Testament, some of the kings would have parties that lasted six months. I mean, it's just nothing but depravity and debauchery people hanging from the ceiling, lampshades on their heads, running around. That's kind of what this guy's doing. He does it. it. The Greek word imagery behind he wasted everything. (laughs) You'll like this living here in Lubbock. It's like throwing something in the air and the wind taking it and it is gone, right? I was at Sam's one time and I bought something and, and I didn't know if it was gonna fit. And I, so I made sure I kept that receipt. Now this is back way before you could just bring your credit card and they could just look it up. You needed that receipt. I went outside, the wind wasn't blowing that much, about 50, 55 miles an hour. <clears throat> and I walked out and I went to grab the car door and that receipt went <clears throat> And it was like over the loop before I could even, and it was like, ha. Ah. <laughs> that ever happened to you? And there's no way I'm going to run after it. No one wants to see that kind of jiggling, me going through the parking lot. And so I had to keep my item. Listen, by the way, once his wealth was gone, so were his friends. Party's over. In times of prosperity, our friends know us. In times of adversity, we know our friends. And he didn't have any. You know, it reminds me of Solomon in Proverbs 14, 12, when he wrote, there's a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. Again, it's the father's child, and so I'll use that um, illustration from time to time where our kids think they have it all figured out, but they, for, they don't know we actually were their age one time. We've made those mistakes, and we're looking at them going, you, don't, you just don't get it, man. This is, this is going to hurt. Uh, maybe hurt you, but it won't hurt me. We'll get to that in a minute. But sin never delivers on what it promises, ever, Amen. ever. It'll take you farther than you want to go, slowly but wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you far more than you ever want to pay. And then someone will come up and they'll say, hey, man, sorry for that guy. What an idiot. But look, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do my party, and I'm going to go my way. And you know what? I'll pull it together after that. But I want to have some fun first. Oh, man. According to the Bible, it doesn't work like that. Because sin, in and of itself, is poisonous. It, it's, 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 it, it's an infecting virus. It's, it has a decaying and enslaving effect on us. It's not like we can just pull out of it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Paralandra, de- describes what he calls the unman. It is a, a figure devoured slowly by sin. He calls him, he describes him as a managed corpse rotting in his sin. 
To openly choose to live in sin, you're no longer under amazing grace, man. You're now under deception. And that's what Satan does best. The serpent still slithers into the garden, disguising himself as an angel of light, whispering and hissing, hey, let's go this way. And we think he looks good, it must not hurt. And we just never ask God if that's a bad idea. And we end up in a big way of hurt. So a sinful state, man, is a constant inner decay, just rotting your spirit. John Bunyan uh, wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. It's next to the Bible. It's the second best-selling book, religious book of all time. I encourage you to read it. It's an allegory. The protagonist is a young man named Christian, and he is leaving the, um, from carrying the load, the weight of trying to be good enough. And then he is guided through the mountains and valleys and danger of this uh, countryside, making his way to the celestial city, which represents heaven. But it's a picture of the Christian journey, the Christian adventure. At one point, he is guided uh, into a particular room. And so the guide took Christian by the hand and led him to a very dark room where a man sat in an iron cage. The man's eyes stared downcast at the ground, his hands folded with his fingers intertwined. Christian looked at the man and said, man, what are you doing here? The man said, I am what I once not was. And so Christian said, well, what were you once? The man said, I was once walking in fellowship with Christ. Christian said, well, what are you now? The man replied, I'm now a man of despair and I'm held captive by it just as this iron cage portrays. Don't let Satan take you for a ride, man. Ask God to give you wisdom and discernment. Stay in his word. There's a corrective property to the, to the Bible. Michael Ward uh, was one of my professors in graduate school. The wonders of, grad, of school now is you can uh, pursue your degree online. So Dr. Ward taught straight from Oxford University in England. A brilliant man. In talking about this topic one time, he said one of the clearest indications that one is not in a state of amazing grace is that one begins to undo oneself, to rot from within, cancerously feeding off one's own remaining strength. Sin feeds off of sin. It's a parasite. And we are not free just to turn it off anytime we want to, man. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In 2 Peter 2, 19, Peter wrote, for you are a slave to whatever controls you. Then, after the money ran out, there was a severe famine. <laughs> well, that younger son didn't plan for that, did he? His financial disaster was followed by an ecological upheaval. And so things have gone from bad to worse to really bad to really worse. You would think by this time he would have thought about going home but he's not broken yet. I, as I've taught and studied through Revelation, you see the, the, the wrath of God and the wrath of God as he's warning the people, you better get it together, man. You better acknowledge me. And they still continue to gnash their teeth and say, never, I'm not gonna do that. And so when we look at this young man, don't be too judgmental. We tend to be bent that way. We know better. Our way is the better way. So in verse 15, 
It says he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed pigs. If you know about Orthodox Jews, you know that pigs are unclean. Oh, how do they not eat bacon? I mean, <laughs> I mean that's holy food there, right? <clears throat> so <clears throat> a citizen, the Greek imagery is this is a privileged person. He probably met this guy while he's out partying and he's got lots of money, right? but hired himself out. Now, this is what I want you to see. This is embarrassing. You ever saw somebody do something you just embarrassed for them? That, this is cringeworthy. Because hired himself out has the imagery of, of gluing himself to, like epoxy. So he's begging this guy. And the guy's going, man, just get away from me. But he's begging and pleading and whining and muttering. And so the guy says, you know what? You're a Jew. I'm gonna give you exactly what you deserve. Go feed the pigs which you people think are unclean. And so while he's out there, you talk about the worst of dirty jobs. He is rolling around. He's, the religious leaders who are listening to this story, as far as they're concerned, he's become one of the pigs, one of the unclean, beyond redemption. There's no hope for this boy. Can you imagine that crowd just listening to Jesus going, absolutely in shock? And no one gave him anything, verse 16 says. But then number four, the son's brokenness. We arrive at what we call in music the pivot chord. When he came to his senses, oh, do we got any Eagles fans out there? Desperado, come down from those fences. Come to your senses, man. Don't you see? You ever had a child or a spouse and you're looking at him going, are you blind? Do you not see, I, a weekly thing for me from my wife. I mean, you know, it's like, and you find that someone's got to kind of hit you upside the head with the proverbial two by four and you go, oh, yeah, there it is. Well, that's what happened here. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. We don't really know what it's like to starve. He said, I know. I'll set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, there's a ton of stuff in here. Let me just point out a couple things. The boy finally broke. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. What that means is to be spiritually bankrupt, to understand that there's nothing in us any good, that we need our Father. We're done. We're ruined. It's Isaiah in, in Isaiah 6 when he's in the presence of the mighty God, high and lifted up, where either the, even the mighty seraphim won't even look into the glory of God. And Isaiah rightly says, I am ruined. I'm a dead man. My sinful state in light of the holiness of the awesome, terrifying God. And that's where he is. He finally, for the first time, his rebellion is in clear focus. He sees his anger, his arrogance, his selfishness, his hatefulness, and his lostness. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So he wanted to go home and say, if I could just be one of my father's hired servants, 
Remember, this father has some wealth, and so he has servants, and so there's a hierarchy. You got your bond servant, your slave, your hired servant, and then your day laborer. Now, I've had day laborers come to my house before. They have no job. They're beggars. Knock on the door. They have a rake or clippers in their hand. Can I do anything? I mean, they're honest, and they just want to work, but can I do anything just for some money so I can eat? That's, that's what the son is hoping for. We know he's broken because he, he no longer thinks he's going to just go back and, and be who he was. He's going, I've, I have I've wasted everything. Can I tell you that if you're here today and you've gone, I've blown it. No, you haven't. I've blown it so bad Jesus couldn't love me. <laughs> My friend, you're not that powerful. It was meant to be a lesson, not a life sentence. So he says, I know. And he rehearses this, this, this speech, which he means from the bottom of his heart. He said, he said, I know I'll go home and I'll say, I've sinned against both heaven and you. In other words, he's saying, Father, I've not only sinned against you, but I've sinned against God Almighty. I don't deserve even to be your son. Would you just possibly permit me to be a day laborer? if that much. I'm reminded of David's prayer in Psalm 51. It was his penitent confession after he got Bathsheba pregnant. By the way, we know that if Bathsheba had been taking a shower when David saw her, her name would be Shower Sheba. <laughs> I, I apologize. I apologize. I, I just want to make sure you're with me. But he takes her, gets her pregnant, and then devises this plan to have her husband murdered. Anytime you think you've blown it, remember something. There was a man named David. And he prays in Psalm 51, Lord, I recognize my rebellion. I see it. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone I've sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. In other words, no more playing the victim. I'm where I am today because of one person, me. And for those who might say, you know what, I'm kind of like that wayward son, but it's just who God made me. <laughs> no, it's not. It's who you've chosen to be. Am I right about it? G.K. Chesterton was one of the great philosophers, defenders of the Christian faith. In Great Britain in the 20th century, one time in a British newspaper, they just printed a thing, said, what's wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote to the editor, back to the editor, they opened the envelope and all it said was, dear sirs, I am. Point five, the father's compassion. Verse 20, so the boy got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now what the people expected Still, they're still waiting for this boy to get his. They're still seeing the father as weak and unstable and dishonorable. They're, what they're thinking is going to happen is this father is going to run out, or not run at all, but he's going to sit there with his arms crossed like this and wait for the son, let his son come groveling home, let him rise up, and then slap him, make a public spectacle of him in front of the entire village, probably stand him up in the middle of the village with a sign around his neck that says, 
sinner, something like that, and pile shame on him. Can I tell you something? Condemnation is from the devil. Conviction is from the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote. For those of you who are walking around under the crippling weight of back-breaking shame and condemnation, it's time to offload that to the cross. And that's what this boy was doing. And so they thought the boy would be completely exposed to utter derision of the whole community, being treated with utter scorn, mocked, abuse, and even spit upon. Well, that sounds a lot like Calvary, doesn't it? What we deserved. And so here's what you see. Man, ancient Jewish men were dignified. They were honorable. They didn't pick up their tunic and start running. They would send a servant or a messenger. But this father ran. Now, don't miss this. The villagers in the story, the people listening, yeah, they would have been shocked that he ran. But also the son. Can you imagine what he was thinking? Here comes my dad. He's running. He's about to pulverize me. But just the opposite happens. What does he do? Oh. He throws his arms around him and kisses him. You ever had, a, ever had a child who's rebellious and they finally come home? Have you ever come home within a marriage, a relationship, whatever it may be? This is not what his listeners expected. And I want you to see he ran. Only time in Scripture where God we see that God ran. I think about one of my favorite prayers. It's in Daniel 9, in verse 23, while Daniel's praying, God dispatched the angel Gabriel, and it says he came to Daniel in swift flight. God is eager to forgive. He can't wait to forgive and to restore men. <laughs> Listen, when you feel as though you're not as close to God as you used to be, make no mistake as to who moved. So the father threw his arms around him, no doubt blocking the scorn and the abuse, maybe even stones the people had picked up to throw at the son. And the father's taken them. I think about Jesus on the cross, man. And for me, with me on his mind, man, he comes down, nails in hands, and he's got me, and he's got you. In Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7, I offered my back to those who beat me my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. This is a messianic prophecy about Jesus Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53, verse four, surely Jesus, the Messiah, 700 years before he would do this, took up our pain and bore our suffering and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He didn't have to, he did it willingly. He was overcome with love. Point six, the father's restoration. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, quick. There's that quick again. He can't wait. Bring the best robe, the ring for his finger, and sandals on his feet. There's a lot in there, but let me just point to the sandals. 
The hired help went barefoot. Only family wore footwear. This boy, when we come home, when we get right, when we break, we're restored immediately and completely by Almighty Christ. In Psalm 40, verse 2, David wrote, He lifted me out of the slimy pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on the rock. Lastly, the father's celebration. The father said, Bring the fatted calf. Kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, amazing grace, but now he's found. So they began to celebrate. And that party has just begun. All heaven broke loose. <laughs> By the way, this boy had this speech, you know, rehearsed. Did you notice? The father never acknowledged it. I know your heart. Let's get on with the party. Philip Yancey, and I finish with this, <clears throat> in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, he wrote a modern version of this story. It's powerful. So I conclude by sharing it with you. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her attitude, her lying, her choice of friends. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you. Her dad knocks on her bedroom door after an argument. She just screams to get out and leave her alone. And then finally, she acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed over and over again. She runs away to Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, and arranges a place for her to stay. What a nice guy. He gives her some pills to make her feel better, and she was right <laughs> all along. Her parents were just keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month or two and then a year, and the man with the big car, she calls him boss. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants, and it was about a year later when the first sallow signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on the metal grates outside the big department stores. Dark bands circle her eyes and her cough worsens. One night, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl. <clears throat> Lost. In a cold and frightening city, her, her pockets are empty. She's hungry, something. And then something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind of the month of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once and her golden retriever dashed back and forth after she throws a tennis ball and he goes to retrieve it. And she says, God, why did I leave? There is a way that seems right, but in the end, it leads to death. The pain stabs at her heart. She thinks my dog at back home eats better than I do now. Now she's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything in the world, she wants to go home. But how can she? 
I mean, she can't imagine her mom and dad ever forgiving her for what she's done, what she has put them through. They don't even know if she's alive. But she's so broken, she does it. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections to voicemail. The first two times, she doesn't leave a message, but the third time, she does. And all she says is, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm, I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll be there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I understand. Well, during the bus ride, she realizes the flaw in her plan. What if her parents are out of town? What if they never get the message? She should have waited another day or so until she could talk to them. And even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead. And, and she should have let them have time to get over the shock that she's alive. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Kind of helps you understand that, that prodigal who's coming home, what he must have been thinking, right? And so she's preparing this apology. Dad, I'm so sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you ever forgive me? She says the words over and over in her mind. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. Well, the bus finally rolls in. The driver announces in, over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have, 15 minutes. She picks herself up, steps off the bus, and walks into the terminal, having no idea what to expect. <laughs> Sorry. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she would see. There, you can picture this, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of about 40 people. Her brother, sisters, great aunts and uncles, cousins, even her grandmother, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that says, welcome home. And then, out of the crowd of breaks her dad. He runs to her and he throws his arms around her and he kisses her on the forehead. He can't let go. She stares out through her tears and begins her memorized speech. She says, Dad, I'm so sorry. I know he interrupts her. Oh, hush, child. <laughs> no time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. What a love story. So what about you? Are you in the far country? Is your heart hard? Are you enslaved to bitterness and fear and anxiety and trying to always be good enough? Are you just lost? It's time to come home. Now for those who may be thinking, wow, the younger son, the girl in the story, there were never really any consequences. Oh, yes, there were. 20 centuries ago, on a hill just outside of Jerusalem, there were consequences. Paul describes it this way in Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, 
still rebellious, still angry and hateful and proud. God demonstrated his own love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He also put it this way in Ephesians 2.13, for though we were first far away, we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jerry's gonna come, we're gonna sing. Folks, we're gonna pray and then we'll stand. Pastors are gonna be here. Do you need to come home? Do you need to come home in your marriage, in your family? Do you need to be a better employee, a better student? Whatever it is, do you need to come home? If you've never professed your faith in the risen Christ, come home. You won't be disappointed. He loves you so much. Let's pray. God, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for absorbing the consequences, for taking what I deserved. Thank you for this love story. For those in here who need to respond, God, give them the courage to do so. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message.